continue our sermon series through the Minor Prophets. I'm going to read the first six verses of Zechariah chapter 1. It says, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore I tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors. Do not to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Well, where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, did they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? And then they repented, and they said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and our practices deserve, just as he had determined to do. Now, the rest of the book of Zechariah is eight visions from God that were given to encourage the people of God and to motivate them to finish rebuilding the temple, a lot of what Dave talked about last week. And they were visions that were grand and spectacular, the kind of thing that you'd see on a movie screen. They were heavenly horse riders among the myrtle trees and four horns scattered by four craftsmen, a man who was measuring Jerusalem, a clean garments for a high priest, a gold lampstand and two olive trees, a flying scroll, a woman in a basket and four chariots. And all of them focus primarily on the judgment of the Gentile nations, God's promise to rescue Israel, his call to repentance, and what was coming for the nations that had brought suffering to God's people. And i got to be honest with you this week, I have struggled with the book of Zechariah. Like I read through this and there's visions and symbols and all these things and they all kind of say the same thing. They all kind of come back to one thing and, and honestly I got a little frustrated as we've been going through the minor prophets because I feel like all of them say kind of the same thing and by the time we've gotten to this point, we only have one week left, I get into Zechariah and I like look at God and go, God, why didn't they just listen? Like, why didn't they listen back in Micah when I preached that like six weeks ago? Then I wouldn't have to preach Zechariah if they would have just listened. And I read over and over again, it's just like, oh my gosh, all the time. Like, God's people tried this, and they, they walked away from God, and then they came back, and then they did this idol, and then they did this religion, and then they tried to earn their way back to God. And the whole time, I look at this, and I go, God, I understand. Like, you had to do all these spectacular visions because these people were missing the simple solution of rescue right in front of them. And honestly, all I could think of, we're going to show this here in just a second, all I could think of all week when I thought of the people of God in the book of Zechariah is this commercial. It's one of my favorite commercials. Go ahead and watch this with me. Let's hide in the attic. No, in the basement. Why can't we just get in the running car? Are you crazy? Let's hide behind the chainsaws. If you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions. That's what you do. Shh, I'm being quiet. Breathing on me. If you want to save 15% or more on car insurance, you switch to Geico. It's what you do. If you're the people of God in the day of the minor prophets, you make poor decisions. 
And like I, I read the book of Zechariah, and I feel like this is probably a horrible illustration because I don't really usually compare God to a serial killer, but I feel like that's his face. <laughs> like, like I feel like God's just sitting there going, what are you doing? Like there's a running car right here, and you're hiding behind the chainsaws. And as you read through Zechariah, you see these magnificent visions and these great calls from God to bring his people, that, these spectacular descriptions, but all of the Zechariah is summed up for me in one verse. And honestly, I think this verse in some ways summarizes the message of all the minor prophets and what they were speaking on behalf of God to the people of God. And it's found in Zechariah chapter 1 that we just read, and it is verse 3. Way at the beginning, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. God's message has been that simple to the people of Zechariah's day and the people before Zechariah's day and the people after Zechariah's day. And I think God's message to us today is equally simple, return to God. And he will return to you. Get in the car and drive to freedom. And as we read through Zechariah, God is angry. He's angry that his people aren't getting it. And Zechariah describes an emotion in chapter 1 from God that honestly sometimes is hard to think of. How can God be this? God's anger is because of this emotion described in verse 14 and 15 in chapter 1. It says, The angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, for God's people and God's places. I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but then they went too far with their punishment. God is jealous, Scripture says. And it's not the only time that Scripture says it. In fact, Scripture describes God as jealous over and over again. In Exodus 34, it's one of the Ten Commandments. It says, Do not worship the Lord your God. Never bow down to another God because Yahweh, being jealous by nature, is a jealous God. In 1 Kings chapter 14, it says, Judah did what was evil in the Lord's eyes. They provoked God to jealous anger. More than all that their ancestors had done with the sins they committed, they built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, asherah poles on every high hill and under every green tree. Later on in the book of Zechariah in chapter 8, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion. With great jealousy, I am jealous for her with great wrath. God is jealous that his people have wandered away. And sometimes I wrestle with that idea of how can God be jealous of something? He's God. But I, I love the definition. Joseph Addison is a poet and an essayist, and this is how he defines jealousy. He says, jealousy is that pain which a man feels from the apprehension that he is not equally beloved by the person whom he entirely loves. Jealousy is a pain that one feels when they know they are not equally loved by someone they completely and entirely love. See, God's holy jealousy springs. 
It's birthed from his great love and his unfaltering desire to have an exclusive relationship with those who he has already delivered, rescued, and redeemed to be his own. God's jealousy is a a passionate commitment to that which rightfully belongs to him. See, God is jealous in the book of Zechariah. God is jealous because somebody else has what's rightfully his. God is jealous for his people because they have wandered and followed and given their allegiance to something that did not pay for it to something that does not love them in the same way that God does. He is jealous because somebody else is getting the allegiance and the commitment and the loyalty that God so richly deserves. He is jealous for his people, his right to be worshipped. And as you read through the book of Zechariah and the minor prophets, you see this over and over again where God's people come back to God and then they wander away. God rescued them. He saved them. He took them out of slavery and bondage and certain death. He led them into the promised land and now they've followed other things. They're worshiping other gods. They're walking completely away from the God who rescued them. They've turned their back on God. They've forgotten about God. They've said God didn't do anything anyway. They have started giving their allegiance and their surrender and their love and their worship to things that did not deserve it, and God is jealous for them to return to him. And some, if you were here when I preached through the book of Micah, Some might once again say, God is still jealous for his people to come home. Some might still say that God's people continue to wander, to walk away, and to give their allegiance to things that do not deserve it. Make no mistake this morning, church, God is jealous for you. He longs for you. This is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. So what do we do with that knowledge this morning? What do we do with this idea that God jealously longs for you and me and his people to come home? Well, I think, first of all, you and I go with the one who deserves our allegiance. We surrender to the one who deserves our surrender, the one who paid the price so that we could be set free. We quit splitting our allegiance. See, in in a covenant relationship, which is what you and I have with God through Jesus, a covenant promise that when we surrender to Jesus, we are saved and set free for all of we begin eternal life in that moment. Our old life is buried. We're raised in a new life walking with Jesus. That's a covenant promised relationship, and there can be no tolerance from God for any competing affection. That's why over and over again the Bible describes our relationship with Jesus like a marriage. And marriages do not work when there's something that gets our allegiance besides our spouse. See, see the problem with God's people in Zechariah's day, and some would say the problem with us today, is we're married to God, but we still want to keep something on the side. 
That might be a little bit of a crass illustration for you this morning, but it's the reality of Scripture. Scripture says, when God does not hold my ultimate allegiance, I'm literally committing adultery on God. I cannot have a relationship with Jesus and keep something on the side that's not him. I can't split my allegiance. That's what's happened to God's people. They said, well, we're following God, but we also put idols in our home. Well, we're following God, but we also worshiped at this temple of Asherah. Well, we're following God, but I'm also following this person. I'm also not following God in this area. Yeah, I, I obey God here, but I don't obey him here. You can't split allegiance with God. It doesn't work. I have to quit sharing my loyalty. I can't have something that's, that's above God in my life. Jesus told us in Matthew 22, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. He said the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law, all of God's word, all the prophets. Now I want to suggest to you something this morning that's going to sound contradictory to what I just said, so hang with me. See, I actually think the issue is not that we, how much we love other things. Now, I know that sounds completely the opposite of what I just said, right? I, I don't. I don't think the issue is how much we love other things. I think the issue is how little we actually love God. See, after I, if I really loved the Lord with all my heart, with everything I know, if I loved him with all my soul, everything I believe, if I loved him with all my mind, everything I think, every thought that I have, if I loved him with all my strength, every action, everything that I do in my life, if I really loved God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength, I don't think there'd be any affection left over that would compete with God. See, see I think the issue is not how much I love other things. I think the issue is how little I love God. If I would just spend my time loving God more, other things would probably get put in their right place. See, Scripture doesn't tell me that I can't love other people than my wife. I really don't, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it doesn't, right? Like, Scripture doesn't say, just love your wife and love no one else. Scripture just says that I should love my wife so much that affection for other people in my life pales in comparison. See, the issue in my life and in my earthly marriage is not how much I love other people. The issue is how little I love my wife. The same is true in my relationship with Jesus. It's not how much I love other things. It's that I haven't placed the correct amount of love on Jesus. I don't know if you've ever seen the sport extreme skiing uh, it used to be a big thing back in the day. When I was a kid, I'm old enough to remember ABC had the, the wild world of sports, and they would show all these different things, and then something bad would happen, and some guy, I can't remember the guy, but he would come on, and he would say, the agony of defeat, and you'd see this great crash, and as a 10-year-old, it was the best thing ever. And they used to show extreme skiing, and these people are nuts. Like, these athletes would essentially just fly down a mountain at breakneck speeds, and if you watched it long enough, eventually one of them would crash, almost die, and as a 10-year-old, would be like, this is the greatest thing ever. Well, one time they interviewed a, a, a skier named Kim Reichhelm, and Kim was at the top of the sport at the time, and she had really, throughout her career, had escaped any serious injury. And the reporter asked her a question. He said, how do you keep from crashing all the time? 
And her answer was this. She said, I look at the spaces between the trees. She said, I don't look at what I don't want to hit. I aim my eyes at where I want to go. You know, Paul said something similar in Colossians chapter 3 when he said that you and I are to set our minds on things above, not on the things of the earth. Because he said, we've already died and our life is now hidden with Christ and God. And I don't know about you, maybe this is just me, but I spend way too much time in my life worrying about the trees. <laughs> I spend way too much trying, trying to dodge the trees. I, I spend way too much time focused on trying to stop all these things in my life and avoid all these things in my life and making sure I don't do these things and making sure I do these things and, and seeing all the trees and all the things that could ruin my life and put all my effort into what I can do to avoid all these things that could crash and burn and make my life horrible when really I should just put all that energy into focusing on Jesus. And maybe if I looked at Jesus who jealously longs for me to come home, Maybe the trees wouldn't be as much of an issue. I wouldn't need to avoid them because I wouldn't even see them. Because I am so focused and so in love with Jesus that it never crosses my mind to run into a tree. See, I think we overcomplicate this a lot. And as we've read through the minor prophets these last few weeks, that's what I see from God's people throughout history. They overcomplicate it. They wander from God and then they say you know, something bad happens in their life and they say, well, maybe we, should do, maybe we should build a different idol. Maybe we should follow a different God. Maybe if we do this and this and this and this and this and then things will go right. Maybe if we ran this way or maybe if we jumped this high or maybe if we got rid of this thing or we added this thing and the whole time God is sitting there and he's saying, just come home. The whole time God's looking at them, it's like he's saying, quit hiding behind the chainsaw. Quit running upstairs instead of out the door. The car's right there. Just get in the car. Return to me, says the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. And you and I have the same problem. <laughs> or at least I do. I overcomplicate this. And I spend all of my energy on adding and subtracting and doing all those things. And I'm not saying none of that's important. I'm not saying you shouldn't have accountability in your life. I'm not saying we shouldn't think critically about how we live. What I am saying is if we would pour even, if we would pour all that energy into just looking to Jesus and returning to Jesus and focusing and sitting at the feet of Jesus, that maybe the other things wouldn't be so hard Zechariah, because of his mercy through Zechariah, God gives Israel and God's people four promises. God says, if, if you return to me, he promises his presence will return to them. If you feel like God's not around, he says, then come home and I'll come back. He, he promises the people of Zechariah's day restored stability in their life and in their city. He promises rich blessing on God's terms and by God's definitions, and he promises renewed favor among the people. See, God in his mercy gives these things that they don't deserve. He doesn't punish them for what they want. See, see mercy is different than grace. Grace is getting something that you and I don't deserve. It's an undeserved gift. 
But mercy is God withholding his judgment that we deserve because of our sin. See, the reality in the book of Zechariah is had God's people been guilty of rebelling and sinning against God? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Had they deserved to be trampled and beaten by the nations around them? Yes. God told them that's what would happen if they did what they did. But in God's mercy, he promises to restore them, to give them prosperity again. And here's why. Because God's love will not let them go. He cannot let them walk away. He cannot stop pursuing them. He jealously longs for them to come home because they are his he created them, rescued them, and restored them. And no matter how many times they walk away, that will never change. His love cannot let his people go. And the same is true for you. Have you and I been guilty of rebelling and sinning against God? Absolutely. Do you and I deserve the punishment that comes with sinning against God? Yes. But in God's mercy, he promises, he promises to restore you. He promises to give you prosperity and life again. And here is why. His love will not let you go. He cannot let you walk away. He will never give up on you. It is impossible for God to stop pursuing you. He jealously longs for you to return. In fact, in chapter 2, he calls his people the apple of his eye. He longs for you to come home. And church, let me tell you, whether you know it or not this morning, you long for the exact same thing. The philosopher Augustine once said that God had, he says, you, God, have made us for you. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And you and I have to decide if we want to return and sit in the seat of God's blessing, if we want to experience the fullness of what it means to follow God above all other things, it kind of reminds me, I don't remember how old I was, I don't know, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. My family went to SeaWorld, fifth grade? Sixth grade? Way to drop the ball. All right, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, and we went down to SeaWorld, and we went down to Texas to SeaWorld. If you've ever been to SeaWorld, we went and see Shamu, the big killer whale. That's who it was back then. It's probably like Shamu number 10 at this point. And uh, we got down there, and if you go, there's these concrete bleachers, and the bottom six or seven rows are painted blue, and that's the splash zone, and that's where the real men sit. All right, like you don't go see Shamu to sit up at top and maybe get a sprinkle of water. You want to experience SeaWorld. And so you sit in the first six rows, they put a poncho on you, and every time that whale jumps, the water just comes over, and it's like a tidal wave, and you are drenched. It, you are soaked for the rest of the day, and it is worth every penny. 
Because you came to experience SeaWorld. You didn't come to watch it. See, and I think that's what God's telling his people. I think he's telling his people, get back in the splash zone. I think he's saying what's happened is you guys have wandered up to the top of the bleachers and you want to see God move and you want to maybe see a little bit of what God's doing, but you don't want to sit in what God's doing because if you sit in what God's doing, it will drench you, it will change every aspect of your life, and it will not leave you the rest of the day. And it will be worth every penny. I think you and I got to get back into the splash zone of God. Where it's not just something we watch, but it's something that we live in and we experience because Jesus is the only one. He is the only one who loves us the way that he loves. He is the only one who would die so that you and I could live. He is the only shepherd worth following. As the band comes this morning, it reminds me of Jim Putnam, a minister out in Idaho. He tells the following parable. He says, imagine that sheep are actually smart enough to speak to one another. So imagine that sheep can actually talk. And he says, one day, <clears throat> several flocks of sheep have been led by their shepherd to one large central watering hole. And as they're mingling and wandering about, one rather disheveled-looking sheep notices other sheep from, from another flock, and he sees that their wool is clean and, and just white as snow. And this is unusual to him. It's unusual in the flock that this dirty sheep comes from. Everyone in his flock is messed up. <laughs> they've got sores on their eyes, they've got ticks on their skin, and the dirty sheep sighs deeply, and he says to the clean sheep, he says, wow. He says, you look so clean. Like, you look so healthy and so happy and your shepherd must be great. And the well-groomed sheep says, oh, you have no idea. He says, my shepherd loves me. Every day he picks the burrs from my wool. He oils my eyes. He strokes my head. He whispers in my ear that he loves me. In fact, he said, in fact, one time my shepherd actually put us in a safe place and left all of us because one of them had wandered away. And the mangy sheep says, my shepherd never does that. And the well-groomed sheep says, oh, my shepherd, he's fought great battles with wild animals to save me. He's rescued me and my fellow sheep. And about that time, the shepherd of the well-groomed sheep gives a call, and all that belong to him follow him. They take off at a sprint. He doesn't even have to plead with them or beg them. They follow him because they love him, they trust him, and they know what he has done for them. And the shepherd walks ahead, and actually he, he needs to turn around because he hears something behind him. He, he reaches the crest of a hill, and something strange happens. He hears shouts, and he turns around, and he sees more sheep than he anticipated. See, most of the sheep in the valley have started to follow him, and their shepherds, who didn't love them in the same way, are chasing them up the hill. There is only one shepherd who will ever love you the right way. And his name is Jesus. And this is what he says. He says, return to me. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. Church, it's time to come home.
We invite you to stand and worship that God this morning as we sing.